WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at University of Detroit Mercy. UDM's Master of Business Administration is designed to accommodate the career needs of professionals across a variety of work organizations. More information at business.udmercy.edu. Good day. It's the Metro on 1019 WDET. I'm Tia Graham. And I'm Nick Austin. Pleasure to be with you today as on the program a little bit later. For a long time, manufacturing and the auto industry drove Michigan's economy. But as our state continues to fall behind its neighbors, some economists think lawmakers must change their focus before it's too late. A look at why some economists say the knowledge economy is the way forward later in the show. But first, on the Metro, the redistricting saga in Michigan continues. The Michigan Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission has been redrawing the state house district maps and will bring the new maps to the public for comment this week. On WDET's Mishmash podcast just last week, Gomer News Service's Ben Solis sat down with Shana Roth and Zach Gorchow to break down where the process is at. Ben, this whole thing started with a group of Detroiters who said the way the state House and state Senate maps were drawn disadvantaged uh, people in Detroit who are black from electing their candidate of choice, that the city, which historically had anywhere from eight to ten districts almost wholly contained within the city, was instead kind of sliced and diced thin strips of Detroit appended to thin strips from the suburbs. And as a result, there were fewer Detroiters, and particularly fewer Detroiters who are black, uh, elected to the Michigan House and elected to the Michigan Senate. And the commission has been walking a fine line to achieve a balanced and fair set of maps. And Ben, we've talked about this quite a bit, that one of the problems the commission has right now is they were specifically found in court Uh, to have violated the Equal Protection Clause by doing things like talking about bringing the black voting age population in these districts down to 35 percent, 30 percent, really drawing districts with race as a predominant factor. And yet their task before them now is to still assure opportunity for black voters to elect their candidates of choice. These two things seem completely at odds with each other. That was Ben Solis on WDET's state politics podcast, Mishmash, talking with Shana Roth and Zach Gorchow. The Michigan Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission wants Detroiters to speak up and speak out about their preferred district maps this month. The 13-member commission is looking to redraw boundaries for the Michigan House of Representatives in Detroit districts 1, 7, 8, 10, 11, 12, and 14. The commission at its February 1st meeting approved nine configurations of a map and an independent map was also submitted for the public's consideration. This Thursday, February 15th, there will be a virtual meeting. As well, there will be two in-person meetings next week, February 21st at Greater Grace Temple on the west side and Thursday, February 22nd at 2nd Ebenezer Church on the east side. Joining us live on the Metro is Edward Woods III, the executive director for the Michigan Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission, to talk a little bit more about the upcoming upcoming meetings and uh, more about what's going on with the commission. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege and an honor. Um, yes, the commission is very much interested in hearing from Metro Detroit, especially Detroit residents with regards to our nine collaborative maps 
and one independent map that is being considered um, to move forward. Um, we have a virtual meeting coming up this coming Thursday, and the virtual meeting is more like an education meeting to talk about the redistricting process, to share information um, with regards to what each map, how um, how each map is configured and what that particularly means um, for a community of interest, um, whether it's a historical in terms of neighborhoods, whether it's cultural, or whether it's um, economic with regards to riverfront or any economic interest. And so we really want to hear from residents, uh, Michigan residents, about how these maps would work in Detroit and do they do any harm as it relates to respective communities to ensuring that their voice gets heard. And we're doing that from 9 to 12 this Thursday, 1 to 4, and 5 to 8. It's a virtual meeting. Um, You click on the link on the day of the meeting. There's no advanced registration. Mm-hmm. And then you raise your hand virtually, and you will be called um, in the number um, in ranked order, depending on when you get online. Mm-hmm. And the commission will be there the whole entire day. And then, as you mentioned, yeah, at the public hearing meetings, we're trying to get people to come up and speak. They can share what they feel about the maps, um, how the maps may need to change. We will have pictures of the maps, just so we're clear, mm-hmm. at each of the public hearing locations. We'll have all 10 maps where people can see they'll be on four-foot-by-three-foot poster board so All people right. can take yeah. a look at it. Um, we'll have someone in the back that can assist um, any resident who wants to speak to the commission. If they like a particular map and think something needs to change, they can make that change for them, and then they can present that change in front of the commission that same day. All right. So, so we Mr. really want to make it easy mm-hmm. as possible for people to raise their voice, show up, speak up. So what are some of the challenges that you all are facing right now when you're trying to make uh, consider the maps and making sure they are fair for everyone uh, represented? Well, the, the biggest thing is making sure we follow the seven ranked redistricting criteria. That is, the, um, as far as I'm concerned, the only challenge. And mm-hmm. I think the commission has done that quite well. You know, one, equal population following the Voting Rights Act. Two, be geographically contiguous. Three, reflect the state's diversity and communities of interest. Um, Four, partisan fairness. Five, not to favor or disfavor an incumbent or a candidate. Um, Six, reflect state, um, I should say county, municipal, and township boundaries. And seven, reasonably compact. Um, In the old standards, the six ranked criteria, which focused on county, municipal, and township boundaries, was the number one priority. In this new redistricting model, which was voted on by the citizens in 2018 by more than 61% of Michiganders, this is now the six-ranked criteria. And so the whole idea was to go from the worst gerrymandering uh, maps in the country where Michigan was to being one of the best. And that's where we were um, with regards to the maps. But the district court um, disagreed with our map, and that's why we're remapping right now. All righty then. So when we you said that the first meeting, virtual meeting is going to be a little bit of an educational type of, of, of conversation happening with the public as well as the commission. Uh, what do you all expect to hear from the public or what are some of the things that you would like to hear from the public in order to help you all uh, create the maps? And they could identify which map that they like and, and based on that map, how it can improve or if it's good or if they like it like it is, that's fine. But we just want to know which map does the public like? Share us which map you like. And if there's ways to improve that map, tell us how to do it. Or if you like it as it is, tell us that as well. 
Um, if you're unable to come, you can go to our website, www.michigan.gov forward slash M-I-C-R-C. Once again, www.michigan.gov forward slash M-I-C-R-C. And you can comment on the mapping portal or the public comment portal and i'm sure your um, information that way as well uh hey, hey commissioner woods this is nick austin jumping in here with you you know i know you've gone through this process before this was a new thing that we went through when the citizens decided to elect this uh new option to have this go through an independent process you're reaching out now for a comment from the community but you've already done this before how is the current path or the current way that you guys are looking for comment different from the first time that you did it is there any change and what have you learned from that well, one of the things that we want to do is, is improve is we know that redistricting is a hard topic. And now that we've kind of moved because we're under a court order is making sure we educate the public. We had a virtual town hall meeting a couple of weeks that helped and we just wanted to amplify it even more by doing it this way. So this is a one change to do it. Um, we're doing more interviews, more districts, interviews, you know, virtual and person. Um, this last week, we have a social media campaign where influencers, you'll start seeing different things on radio, um, television, through Comcast, print, newspapers to inform people. And then we'll be on Facebook, social, uh, Facebook, Instagram. We're going to be on TikTok. And we'll be at gas station TVs. So just really trying to diversify, working with churches. We have flyers out to make sure that people are aware. Um, we have an educational flyer that um, I'm sure Vanessa Hamilton has probably shared with you, yeah. who's with McConnell Communications, who's working with us in our outreach, um, led by Darcy McConnell. And then our social media game is being done through 98, for, um, 98 Forward, which is um, led by, in this project, um, George L. Muirhead. So we're yeah. really happy with our two PR firms that yeah. are helping us um, get the word out and the partners that are helping us. Yeah. Um, I think we're very more dedicated, more, more, how can I say, we're trying to enhance that and up that game. Yeah, I, I so see that, that from you, especially with the way that you guys, just to jump in, because I want to make sure to get another question in before we lose you, can see that concerted effort that's happening. But the effort that you guys made beforehand, some would say was a success. If you look at the way that the electoral maps worked and what we ended up in the state house, really close elections, uh, plus two to Democrats, which reflected the state pretty accurately in terms of what you would see uh, with just general election maps. So some would say it was a success. Of course, though, the court disagreed. And now you're going through the process uh, while you're appealing the court of of trying to look at maybe having another map before something's just instituted by the special master. So I think the question some might have would be, is this an admission by going through this process that the maps that we initially drew were unfair, or do you stand by those maps as thinking that they were appropriate? And we stand by those maps, as you know, that we are under appeal, but why, because our stay was denied, we still have to follow the court order and, and following the court order. We're doing it. Just we're trying to make sure our outreach and our game was just as good as it was before, as it was now. If you um, you noted last time, we um, we had a great outreach game. We had nearly thirty thousand public comments that came in across the state, which was more than um, California had the first go around, and we're a quarter of the size of California. So we're very proud of our outreach efforts that the commission has done, and we're trying to do the same thing in abiding by this court order, even though we disagree with it, and that's why we filed a stay as well as an appeal.
Well, thank you so much for joining the Metro this morning, chatting with Edward Words III. He's the executive director for the Michigan Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission. And there are three public meetings happening within the next two weeks, starting this Thursday, February 15th from 9 a.m. until 8 p.m. on Zoom. And once again, thank you so much for joining us on the Metro. Thank you so much for having me on the Metro and have a great evening. You too. This is the Metro, our daily news and culture program, bringing you the latest in Metro Detroit through stories and conversations. Coming up, a look at why some economists say the knowledge economy is the way forward for our state when we return. WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at the University of Detroit Mercy. UDM is offering a new Master of Science degree in ethical leadership focused on sustainable, ethical, and inclusive problem solving. Admission is open to qualified applicants with a bachelor's degree in any field. Course selection is flexible with no prerequisites, four required courses, and six electives. Learn more at business.udmercy.edu. Welcome back to the Metro, Monday, February 12th. I am Tia Graham. I am here with Nick Austin. Quick forecast. It's 35 degrees in the Cass Corridor today, high of 41 degrees. It is going to stay in the late 30s to early 40s all week, much chillier than last week. We could see some rain on Thursday, so do pack those umbrellas. However, what should lawmakers in Lansing focus on to boost Michigan's economy? Nick Austin has more. Well, Tia, for experts at Michigan Future, a nonprofit think tank in collaboration with the University of Michigan and their researchers, it's been a clear answer for a while now. Focus on expanding the state's knowledge economy. Like I mentioned, this approach has been their recommendation for literally the past 20 years. Back in 20, or excuse me, back in 2004, they released a groundbreaking report titled A New Path to Prosperity, Manufacturing, and Knowledge-Based Industries as Drivers of Economic Growth. This report made the case for prioritizing high-paying, knowledge-based sectors like information, finance, professional services, and the like to drive economic growth. But of course, Michigan has deep roots in the manufacturing and auto industries, and it was a controversial stance then. Now, two decades later, the research team highlights that not only has Michigan failed to make this pivotal shift, but its economic progress has also been hindered as a result. Did you know, Tia, that we're currently ranked 39th in the nation for personal income per capita? I know you did. I know you did. (laughs) Without significant changes, though, Michigan Futures projections are grim, estimating the state would fall to 48th place by 2045 ahead of only Mississippi and Alabama. So to delve deeper into these findings and understand the motivation behind the year's uh, this year's update, I spoke with Don Grimes, a regional economic specialist at the University of Michigan, where my first question to Don was... What was their research process and how did they arrive at their conclusions? We focused on a measure called personal income per capita. And this is a measure of sort of all of the income received by residents of of Michigan and other states. It includes earnings, which is a combination of, you know, how many people are working and what they're getting paid and uh, other sources of income like capital income and transfer payment. And it's a relationship to the total population. It's a per capita measure. 
So it's really a measure of the uh, well-being, the economic well-being of the average person in the state or county. And if you look at this measure over time, you see that among the 50 states, Michigan ranked 13th in uh, 1969. We were 16th in 1999, but by 2022, Michigan was 39th among the 50 states. So throughout the 20th century, Michigan was a high income, high wealth state. But since the 21st century started, we've been in decline. From your research, what's the cause of that decline? So there are two factors, and everybody in Michigan is always focused on a decline in the auto industry. And that is absolutely true. We lost a lot of jobs and the very high wages that were paid to workers in the auto industry and in supplier industries, you know, sharply eroded in the 21st century due to competition that came into the auto industry from other plants. And everybody focuses on that in Michigan, thinks, and if we can stop that decline, we'll stop our income loss. But that's actually not the major reason why we lost ground in the 21st century. The major reason why the state of Michigan uh, lost ground compared to other states is because we didn't grow the knowledge economy. We didn't grow jobs in industries that tend to employ people with a bachelor's degree or more. And even more importantly, we didn't get big pay increases among people who have a bachelor's degree or more compared to other states. Would it be the responsibility then of business to hold that? Or is there something the state can do to help drive those numbers up? What you really need are people who are working in the high-wage private sector industry. A lot of it's uh, information technology-driven, both software and hardware and computers and private sector research activity, including uh, in pharmaceutical manufacturing and research. So we need private sector industries that tend to employ workers that are paid really, really high wages, much higher than I think people in Michigan understand if you want to become an affluent state. Well, then are there any policy levers that you would push for the state to pull in order to accomplish this? Partly, you could look for policy levers and we could try to figure some out and the state people can figure it out. But I think it's really a change in focus. I think that we have all been focus too much on thinking at manufacturing. And if we could just stop the slide in the auto industry in particular, we'll be okay. And I think we just have to realize, and most importantly, that that's just not enough. And I think that's what policymakers also have to realize, that that's just not enough. It's not going to move Michigan off the bottom. In fact, there's a high likelihood that by the time the 2023 data is released, Michigan will be a bottom 10 state in the United States. We have to realize that we have to change. And once we change, we can begin to try to figure out what are the policy levers that will have the most effect in attracting these knowledge uh, jobs. Of course, when you want to create a lot of knowledge industry jobs, you need the workers to fill those jobs, which is basically people who have a bachelor's degree or higher. So Michigan uh, also lags substantially behind other states and the share of its population that has a bachelor's degree or higher. And obviously, one of the levers that would have to be pulled is to increase our educational attainment.
We're speaking with Donald Grimes, Don Grimes Research Specialist with the University of Michigan, talking about a new report that they released, A New Path to Prosperity, Manufacturing, and Knowledge-Based Industries as Drivers of Economic Growth. One of the things that was interesting in reviewing the paper, Don, was that it basically parroted what you said was going to happen 20 years ago, and you kind of showed how what you guys foresaw would happen actually ended up happening in this case. Meanwhile... Other states have separated and done differently. So do you have any examples from your research now looking back 20 years ago to this updated version of other states or other cities, things that they have done to help uh, increase their knowledge economy that we might be able to learn from? Well, I mean, uh, let's take Massachusetts. Um, Back in 1969, uh, the personal income per capita in Massachusetts was the same as it was in Michigan. Um, in 1999, uh, Massachusetts was a little higher, moved a little bit above Michigan. But now there's a yawning gap between the prosperity of the residents of Massachusetts and the prosperity of the residents in Michigan. And if you look at the economic development reports that are put out uh, by the state of Massachusetts, it's all about creating jobs in the knowledge economy. It's all about uh, you know, uh, how to take advantage of uh, the revolution in AI and other information technology. It's all about, a, a, you know, a scientific research in pharmaceuticals and other uh, advanced manufacturing. You know, that they understand what, what makes you rich. Um, I'm not certain that Michigan uh, leaders, both in the private and public sector, really do. They still think the auto industry is going to make us rich. And it's not. Mm, Well, you know, we do have a lot of history with the auto industry and something that you did bring up. This push and pull is something that we've been looking at for decades here in the state. But when I also think about increasing high income jobs, I think about the wage gap that we're seeing and an increasing wage gap. And so if you're someone who's working one of those manufacturing jobs, someone who maybe doesn't have a bachelor's degree, but relies on making a good earning and is at risk of losing their jobs. Why would that person, who I think makes up a bulk of who we have here in Michigan, be concerned about the state changing its focus towards the knowledge economy? Well, a lot of it's going to be their kids, right? I mean, first, it's uh, uh, if their kids uh, are going to go out and, and seek a higher paying job. I mean, I, I grew up, I worked in the auto plants uh, while I was uh, going to college, and I know how well they paid and how beneficial they were to the standard of living of the state of Michigan. But the future is not going to be determined, affluence is not going to be determined by whether or not you pay to Uh, a lot of people, a relatively good amount of money in uh, manufacturing. So the first issue is for future generations. I mean, you're looking forward. It's a problem now, but it's going to be a problem even more so in the future for your kids. If they want a high paying job, if they go to college and they seek a high paying job, they're going to leave the state. So I think one of the reasons why everybody in the state of Michigan has to be concerned about what happens to the knowledge economy in the state is if we don't change, our kids are going to leave. That was Regional Economic Specialist at the University of Michigan, Don Grimes, discussing with us his report, the report that they created at Michigan Future, part of Michigan Future. You can find out more information and see the report yourselves at michiganfuture.org. This is The Metro on 1019 WDET, our new show 
connecting Metro Detroiters through stories and conversations about the news, arts, and culture affecting the city and our region. I'm Nick Austin. And I'm Tia Graham. Now, Prasad Venagopal is a physics professor at the University of Detroit Mercy. He also teaches about the intersections of race, gender, and science as part of the African American Studies Department. He tells WDET's Sasha Ryan when the Jesuits gave him funding to create a class called Science, Technology, and Race, it gave him the chance to marry his identity as an activist focused on issues of labor, immigration, and racial justice with his identity as a scientist and educator. I was always struck by this disconnect between what I was teaching my students and the world that I inhabited outside of the classroom. It almost felt like I had to leave most of who I was outside the classroom and enter this supposed space of neutrality and universal truths and all of those. And that was a problem for me. I knew it wasn't true. I knew I walked in who I was. I was an immigrant. I was a person of color. My students were African-Americans, Arab-Americans, white working class students, uh, students from the middle class, students with great religious um, convictions and so on. And it just felt like, why are we not looking at the way science and all of these social factors intersect with each other? So what would you teach in a course that is about science, technology and race? We started looking at the census, and it's a remarkable exercise to just take uh, the Pew Roundtable has this document that just um, reflects the racial categories in the census from 1790 onwards. So I present my students with the census, and they see all these racial categories and some ethnic categories mixed in there. And the question I ask them is, take a look at it from 1790 all the way to the present, and tell me what you see. And of course, what they notice is that racial categories change, um, that they were very few. There were basically um, slaves, free blacks, and whites. And then as you go through the decades, you start seeing Hindus suddenly show up as a racial category, even though it clearly refers to to religion. You see uh, a Chinese Americans showing up, Japanese Americans. Um, you start seeing blacks split up after the Civil War um, and so on. And even before, you, you see the census break them down according to the percentage of, of ancestry, black ancestry that they had. So we get all these racially pejorative terms like mulatto and so on. And we start seeing all of these things. And then suddenly they all disappear and new categories appear. Well, the first question is, when, what are these changes, the changes in the census categories? What do they reflect? And broadly speaking, they reflect changes in American history, very seminal points such as the, the Civil War, the end of the Civil War, and so on. But then the second thing they realize, there is a lot of controversy and complexity about the definition of race itself. So they start seeing this connection between medicine, biology, race, and the census. And it really sticks with them a lot. And then I talked to them about one, probably one of the most boring things from a title point, and it's the Office of Management and Budgets Directive 15. It's a very dry document, but they recognize that a lot of the research that's done in the United States, 
particularly government-funded research, uses racial categories set established by OMB Directive 15. And they see the NIH and NSF and all of these uh, institutions, as well as private entities, using Directive 15 to help categorize these racial categories. And some of, some of them are not even racial. So they, they start seeing the connection with biology uh, and science and med medical research and the census. We talk about the fact that it didn't come from ancient times, but developed in the 15th, 16th century and so on. And we, we trace a little bit of that. Um, and then we bring ourselves all the way to the 21st century when we talk about genetics and race. When we talk about how our perceptions of race and identity, of culture, how uh, what we bring to the science affects the science, it's, it's a clearer thing for me to see how, how that might work in like chemistry, which I can relate to medicine. Mm -hmm or how it might work with, you know, biological sciences. It's harder for me to see how it works with physics. Physics has always been a very tough nut to crack. Physics has done a remarkable job in, in producing this framework that says we are only dealing with the natural world. We're looking for universal truths and so on. And, and so that sense of objectivity, value neutrality and so on is very deeply embedded within the way physics is done. I decided I wasn't going to go the route of the famous physicists um, to talk about Benjamin Banneker as a as a astronomer and just talk about somebody like Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson or someone. And you're the famous physicist. Um, so in a physics class, having students read biographies seemed like the craziest thing to do. They don't really read their physics textbook. And here I am tossing a second book into the mix. But I had them read uh, The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind, which is a story of this young inventor from Malawi who created a windmill in his, uh, in his little village using scrap parts from the tobacco estates. And he produced this windmill and he was able to charge phones with it and so on. It was a tremendous achievement and the biography is, is really well written. And then uh, in a subsequent semester, I had my students read about the hidden figures. So they were finding out, as they were reading the book, they were learning how ordinary people, and by ordinary people, I mean people whose names are not in some pantheon of great physicists. Ordinary people did extraordinary things in their lives using physics. So tell me what you want your students to do with this knowledge and perspective. How do you want this to kind of live in the world? I want my students to be the best scientists that they can be. And I want them to understand that the best scientists that they can be is, is very much connected with the values that they bring with them. They can be anti-racist scientists. They can be feminist scientists. They can be scientists who are very involved in racial and class equity and so on. They're scientists who can look at the common good as they do their science. They can be scientists who ask, what impact is this going to have on society? How can I minimize the harms? In other words, I want my students and I want all our students to bring very strong values of the common good of justice into the science that they do. Prasad Venagopal is a professor in the University of Detroit Mercy's Physics and African American Studies Department. He spoke to WDET Sasha Ryan. You're listening to the Metro, our daily news and culture program, bringing you the latest in Metro Detroit through stories and conversations. Coming up, 
We'll take a look, answer the question. What is the highest point in Detroit? If you said it's the 04 Pistons, well, first of all, you're wrong. It was 89, the 89 Pistons. But we're talking elevations. Listener wants to know, we've got the answer for you. Coming up next when we return on the Metro. the metro this monday february 12th i am tia graham i am here with nick austin and i just want to remind you all coming up this president's day join wdet news director jerome vaughn and a panel of michigan journalists for the first installment of smart politics on president's day that's february 19th at hopcat in midtown detroit get more details and tickets at wdet.org slash events and i think about like you said the peaks and the levels and elevations here in detroit what about it yeah well motown singer tammy terrell was in detroit when she belted out the words ain't no mountain high enough she might as well have been talking about our vertically challenged city but a lack of mountains isn't enough to stop some people from looking for a peak as part of the latest episode of curiosity outlier media's kobe levin explains What if you grow up in a city that has to build sledding hills for toddlers, and you find yourself wondering, What is the highest point in Detroit? Scott Barnett, a math instructor at Henry Ford College, was raised in northwest Detroit. His mom drove him to school every day, always by the same route. He still remembers the turns and the main landmark, an incongruous hill on Curtis Street. And we'd go up it on the way home from school, and um, it was so different. The fact that everything around it is so flat So yeah, I just always wondered about it. Something out of the ordinary. Years later, Scott came across an article that claimed the hill on Curtis Street was the highest point in Detroit. This was big neighborhood news. He told his childhood friends about it. But the article is wrong, I think. I'm Kobe Levin, science reporter for Outlier Media, and this is Curiosity, where listeners ask questions about everything Detroit. In this episode, we're on the hunt for the highest natural point in a city that isn't quite as flat as it seems. Search online for Detroit High Point, and you might wind up on the phone with a retired high school teacher from Missouri named Dennis Stewart. Stewart is kind of a big name in elevation, a former Guinness World Record holder who once summited the high points of the 48 contiguous states in a single month. In 2017, he was driving through Detroit and decided to check out the local high point, which is how he ended up on a skeptical Detroiter's doorstep, trying to explain why he wanted a selfie in their backyard talk to him for a while to, so they could see that I was legitimate, that I wasn't some guy trying to get in their home and <laughs> scope them out. So, uh, but after they felt comfortable with me, then they, they were, you know, they were friendly and let me go in their backyard and stand there and take my picture. I want to confirm that the spot Stuart visited is Detroit's true peak. So I call up Mike Wolchinski, a retired geologist. He knows the high point offhand. It's on 8 Mile um, on the west side, just around where the old WWJ, WJR, whatever it was, radio station used to be. But that's not the spot Stuart summited. I tell Wilczynski he might be wrong, and he gets kind of excited and starts emailing me maps. Turns out there are at least two possible peak Detroits, one near 8 Mile Road and one near 6 Mile, not far from Scott's childhood neighborhood. This makes sense to Wilczynski. 
Toward the end of the last ice age, maybe 10,000 years ago, melting glaciers left behind a layer of rock and soil in the northern half of Detroit. The city may look flat, but it's on a slight slope, rising almost 100 feet between the river and 8 Mile. Wilczynski and I agree to find the real Detroit high point for ourselves. He promises to bring some equipment to take measurements. Turns out he means an iPhone app, which he tests out before we get started. I've been looking at like GPS, so let's, let's, well, let's look at it right here. <laughs> Here's what it is right now. I'm at 670.39 feet, but that's plus or minus 32 feet. Oh, I'm sorry. Take that back. Uh, 19 feet. I can't say I'm filled with confidence as we head to the first possible peak. But as we approach the coordinates Stuart visited, we look down this very normal Detroit street, neat brick bungalows, a park with a basketball court, and we see it. Look at That's the spot. And we can see a rise um, in the street. Looks like several feet going to the north. And that's higher than here. And according to a topographic map, it should be around this park area, and that looks like it's it, right there. At the top, Wilczynski's phone tells us we're at 675 feet above sea level, plus or minus 18 feet. We can see for blocks. Wilczynski thinks this hill began as a beach. Detroit was underwater 14,000 years ago, he explains. Lake St. Clair and Lake Erie were one mega lake. Every time the water receded, exposing the future city, it left behind a shoreline, a ridge of sand and rock. People living here may not realize it, but they've got beachfront property. As we stand there, a neighbor steps out onto his driveway. Wilczynski tries to flag him down, but he's not inclined to chat, and he's definitely not impressed by our big news. You live at the highest elevation in the city of Detroit. You're about 100 feet above the Detroit River here. Okay, useless information. It, it don't put money in my pockets. No, it doesn't. I think we're inching closer to the truth here, but the quest continues. We hop back in the car to investigate the other high point. So remember how the number to beat is 675 plus or minus 18 feet? The new location's next to a school, and it's much flatter, no hill in sight. But our GPS says 678. This is three foot higher, plus or minus 28 feet. That's a larger margin of error, isn't it? He nods. No! So it's either that spot or this spot. As Wilczynski puts it, we're in a bit of a quandary. How do you determine the highest spot in an area like Detroit where it's relatively flat? You know, you'd have to go find a benchmark and actually run out a line from that. Survey would have to run out from that or use you know, much more accurate GPS. But what's, what we have available as, as just the average person is, is the technology's not there. If anyone from the U.S. Military Surveying Service is listening to this... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Give us a call. So, to answer Scott's question, Detroit has two high points, at least, we think. And neither one is his childhood hill. Scott says he's fine with that. I still love Detroit and uh, happy to learn more about it. Apparently, my, my memory uh, may not be correct of the significance of that, uh, that one hill. That's okay. I live on the east side of Detroit, not far from the river. As I head to my house, thinking about useless information, a new thought pops into my head. From here to home, it's all downhill. For Curiosity, I'm Kobe Levin. Hear more from Curiosity and ask your own Detroit question at WDET.org slash curious. Subscribe by searching for Curiosity, C-U-R-I-O-S-I-D in your favorite podcast app. This is the Metro. 
our new show connecting Metro Detroiters through stories and conversations about the news, arts, and culture affecting the city and our region. Now, Nick, I don't know about you. My eyes are still a little heavy watching the Super Bowl. We went into overtime last night. You didn't did not, watch it, no? so I don't have to worry about it. Not that. even a little bit? Not even so a little bit. you didn't see like, all of Taylor Swift everywhere? Couldn't, I knew I couldn't stomach didn't it. Underst- you didn't see Beyonce break the internet? Thea, while you were worried about those things, I was worried about the Metro and getting uh, segments oh, prepared for this show. Like That's right. I'm dedicated to this, right? You're going to do my Detroit Lions wrong. Oh, I'm going to spend that time. Working on the Metro. Okay, Mr. Bowtie. Ha! Okay, Mr. Bowtie. However, the Kansas City Chiefs beat the San Francisco 49ers in Super Bowl 58. And while Lions fans might have been tuned out during the game, like you just heard from Nick Austin, daydreaming about what could have been, ESPN's Martin Martinzi Johnson was paying close attention. He spoke with NPR's Steve Inskeep to break down the game. So I was watching the early going, and it just really felt like the 49ers had come to play and the Chiefs didn't. Like, the Chiefs were really lucky not to be far behind, and eventually they were behind 10 nothing. So how'd they turn it around? Uh, basically, mistakes by the 49ers. That's the one thing that you can't do against Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs, and they did that. Like you said, they did get out to a 10 uh, 10-0 lead, but it could have been far worse for the Chiefs. There was a fumble on the first drive by the 49ers and then a holding call on their second drive, and they just kept the uh, Chiefs in the game for the entire uh, rest of the game until we get into overtime. But basically, the mistakes by the 49ers, but then the Chiefs got it rolling in the second half. The defense stepped up a lot, and obviously the receivers caught passes for the Chiefs this time, and Patrick Mahomes was just inevitable, as he always is. Well, let me talk about Patrick Mahomes, the quarterback. Uh, for those who don't follow this all the time, he can pass, he can also run, he scrambles incredibly well, and it appeared in the early going that the 49ers' defense had contained him. They kept him from running all around mm-hmm. the field. Did he eventually adjust as the game went on? He did. So he didn't have many throwing lanes. He had to hold onto the ball a lot in the first half, but then he started dicing them up in a second. I'm not a schematics person, but he, he found time to get the receivers open. And like you said, he faced times third inches, fourth inches, where he just took off himself. He, he realized, I'm not going to be able to throw it to anyone. I don't have the passing lanes that I need. So I just have to get this myself. And it's just very reminiscent of a, a Michael Jordan, a LeBron James, a Tom Brady, where it's like, Nothing else is working, so I'm just going to rely solely on myself. And you saw it again in in regulation and obviously in overtime. So I'm old enough to remember when the 49ers were the inevitable team in Super Bowls. They just won no matter what uh, decades Mm -hmm. ago. Now it seems like the Chiefs are the inevitable team for the moment, and the 49ers have lost a few times. What does another loss mean for Coach Kyle Shanahan and his team? Let me just start by saying I was not alive uh, during the 49ers initial (laughs) run, so this is brand new to me. Uh, Okay, okay. As as far as Shanahan, you got to feel bad for him. When he was the offensive coordinator for the uh, Atlanta Falcons when they played the Patriots, they were up 28-3, they lose. When he was the head coach of the 49ers a couple years ago when they played the Chiefs in the Super Bowl, they're up 10 points (laughs) against the Chiefs, and they lose. And then this Mm -hmm. one again, up 10-0 up late in the fourth quarter and they lose again. Uh, It just means he has difficulty getting over the hump. There were some 
questionable play calls. Um, I saw something about how they should have taken the ball second in overtime rather than first. So it's just small things. They're right there, though. But the main thing I zero in on, the, on Shanahan is he he really loves to have, I won't say mediocre, but average quarterbacks and hoping that they can take them to the Super Bowl. Garoppolo, Brock Purdy. Uh, and really, you just need a need an elite quarterback because at the end Brock Purdy facing third and five I believe had to throw the ball away when Pashros got there if you have an elite quarterback you might win this game that's the only thing stopping them that was ESPN reporter Martenzie Johnson and NPR Steve Inskeep recapping the Super Bowl. Now, coming up on WDET, we have new music shows, and the latest one is Jazzy. That's coming up on the Metro. This is the Metro on 1019 WDET, where I'm Nick Austin, joined by Tia Graham. But that's not all that's happening here at WDET, as this is a new show for you. You know we've got a lot of new music also coming up and coming your way, including the new jazz program Visions, hosted by Kaylee Wilder. Our own Rob Reinhardt spoke with Kaylee about her new jazz program. Starting on Monday, there are going to be a whole bunch of new music hosts that will be joining the staff here at WDET for weeknight programs. We want to meet one of them right now who's going to be hosting a jazz show on Mondays from 8 until 10 p.m. The show's going to be called Visions. And the uh, host is Kaylee Wilder, who is with us in the studio. Welcome. Thank you for having me today. Oh, it's, it's a thrill here. to have you here. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, uh, you we should tell the audience you are a musician yourself. Yes. So that changes the focus a bit because you actually, it's not like me, I don't play anything. <laughs> I sit here and I do this. I played drums very badly for a very short period of time when I was very young. I did want to ask you specifically about the show because as you, what an exciting time. Like yeah. to be starting a radio show. <laughs> like I wish I could remember starting a radio mm, show yeah. <laughs> and how exciting that was. Um, so how do you picture it now? What's the vision for Visions? Mm, that's a great question. Vision for Visions. So for me, it's, you know, definitely wanting to play, you know, more of the avant-garde things. And also, I think a big thing for me, too, is playing music that intersects with jazz. So the, the things that jazz has influenced, I mean, it has a global influence. You know, you think about R&B, neo soul, hip hop, you know, electronic music. I really want to be able to play music that is like that. Who are your favorites right now? Oh, it's not a fair question. I understand <laughs> it. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I mean, do you actually have some favorites that you you go, yeah, this is somebody who is really doing um, something groundbreaking, like something new and different. Yeah. So someone that I've really enjoyed and admired their work is Matana Roberts, saxophonist. Um, they have this whole series uh, project called Coin Coin, and there's a bunch of different chapters. A chapter just came out recently, and it's Matana going into their family roots, taking a lot of mm-hmm. trips and doing like ethnography of their family lineage and telling those stories. So, you know, one chapter is about, you know, Mississippi, and it's these stories of family members that Matana has never met, but through this, you know, genealogy stuff, like it's really finding out all this information and and it's it's voice, you know, like storytelling and improvisation and 
sees like large ensembles with maybe strings and brass sections and all of this stuff. And it's all, you know, improvised music and, Mm -hmm. you know, original compositions. And that has been hugely inspiring for me thinking, you know, even just going into my own family history stuff. I mean, I, I went on this family reunion to Mississippi in July of 2022 and then I heard Montana's work. And so that, yeah, that has just, it's been super inspiring for me. You have a fascinating background. You have a lot of great stories to tell, and I'm looking forward to hearing this. Uh, Monday nights, again, 8 o'clock, uh, 8 to 10. Uh, the show is called Visions, and this is Kaylee Wilder, who is with us this afternoon to just speak a bit about it. But do join her Mondays, 8 to 10. And, of course, if you missed the show on the air, and I don't know why you would, uh, go to WDET.org, and you'll be able to hear the show on demand there. Um, play us out. What are we going out with? All right. This will be... One of my favorites, as you asked me earlier, mm-hmm. a song by Alice Coltrane off of her first record as a band leader. I believe it was 1968, a monastic trio. The song is called Atomic Peace. All right. Thank you for coming by this afternoon. Thanks for having me on. That was WDET's Rob Reinhardt speaking with Kaylee Wilder about her new show, Visions. That's tonight from 8 to 10 or Monday evenings from 8 to 10 every single week. Now, new week, new grooves. Ryan Patrick Cooper, what is on the deck for In the Groove? Well, uh, the main thing we're doing today is celebrating the music of Can and Domo Suzuki, who passed away over the weekend. So, experimental, mixed in with new music. We're about to get into the groove right now. Coming up here on WDET, Tia and Nick. That's right. That's the groove at noon here on 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit Public Radio. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. This is the Metro. You can listen to episodes online at WDET.org. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. This show is produced by Sam Corey, David Lyons, and Jack Philbrandt, with reporting today from Sasha Ryan and Amanda LeClaire. Our technical director is Nate Bender. Music by Sam Bobian. And our news director is Jerome. Vaughn and program director is Adam Fox. The Metro is a WDET production, a listener-supported service of Wayne State University, and if you like what you hear and want to support the Metro, consider becoming a member at WDET.org slash donate. We'll see you next time on the Metro. Have a good day. WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at University of Detroit Mercy. UDM is offering a new master's degree in ethical leadership focused on sustainable, ethical, and inclusive problem solving. More information at business.udmercy.edu.